মনরে বননির সেনেহর নিজরার পানিকে তু পিপিউ পুরা কই ভেতিতে তুমি ঘরে বান্ধা ও আমি তঙ্গাল তোলাই দিউ আবার আমি বানমো ঘার আবার গাইমো দুখে যদি আশান গলে গুলবে কি পরা Greetings everyone. Before we start the 10th episode of Material Analysis, uh, it is going to be a slightly serious episode. Before we begin that episode, it, I, Chandu and Comrade Pramod are going to go over a short piece of Indian history. And that story is relevant to the episode that follows. So the story begins with the formation of the colonial entity which uh, we now recognize as the state of Assam. Comrade Pramod, could you tell us a bit about how Assam formed out of the old Ahom kingdom and other adjacent territories? The way we think about Assam is that we tend to identify it with the Ahom kingdom. However, it is important to remember that large parts of what is Assam today, and in fact, large parts of what was British Assam, were not parts of this Aum kingdom in, it, in their histories. Um, you had a, a very large chunk of what is Assam today that was essentially ceded by the Burmese at the Treaty of uh, Yandabo after the first Anglo-Burmese war between Burma and the East India Company you have what is called and what uh, is now multiple districts to the west of Kamrup, but which used to be the undivided Gualpara district once, which was essentially a part of the Kuchbihar kingdom. Now the capital of Kuchbihar is in West Bengal. Um, I mean, the capital, of, the former capital of Kuchbihar is in West Bengal, what is West Bengal today. And Gualpara district was called Northeastern Rongpur at the time by uh, the British and was essentially a part of their territories in Bengal. Um, alongside this, you have the territory of Kachar. And alongside that, you have some provinces, but, uh, some districts towards north of the um, territories that were ceded by the uh, Burmese, such as Savia. So in 1870, now all of these territories that were ceded uh, were essentially added the province of Bengal sometime or another. In 1874, the Northeast frontier was spun off from Bengal as a separate administrative region. And this comprised of what is today Assam, including Gualpara, including Kachar. Uh, it consisted of the Naga Hills, the Rushai Hills, which, which we now know as Mizoram. Uh, it consisted of the Khasi Jaintia Hills, and the Garo Hills, among other regions. So this was a, a very large and diverse territory. Um, oh yeah, and it also included one part that is actually in Bangladesh today, which is Silet. So you can get a sense of how diverse this entire northeastern uh, 
frontier region was within the British, uh, within the colonial state, which had a diversity of cultures, diversity of religious traditions, diversity of languages, etc., languages and dialects, etc. This territory would again be reabsorbed into Bengal, or rather would be joined with a part of Bengal during 1905, uh, when Curzon essentially partitioned the province of Bengal into Eastern Bengal and Western Bengal, uh, would be joined with Eastern Bengal. But again, once the partition was undone, uh, it became a separate state in its own right, and that was what is known as Assam. Now, that Assam is also not the Assam that we know today, because that Assam also happened to include Silet. It happened to include these states like what what today states like Nagaland and Mizoram and Meghalaya. So yeah, so that is essentially what Assam used to be prior to 1947. Comrade Pramod, that gives us an idea of what Assam was prior to 1947. But uh, the uh, Assamese polity is not just the geographical region, it's also very much the uh, uh, language. So could you tell us a bit about the history of how this language came into being in colonial times? Right. So one thing that you hear a lot about is that after the Treaty of uh, Yandabo and the accession of Assam into colonial Bengal, that Bengali was quote-unquote imposed as the official language in Assam. Now, there is there is a lot there are there can be a lot of contestations regarding this. For instance, uh, Bengali and Assamese are, although now considered separate languages, are to a great extent mutually intelligible. And prior to colonialism, there was no such thing as an official language policy. I mean, uh, people just spoke in whatever dialect that they wanted. The way colonial administrators saw, they saw a bunch of related dialects, I mean, including dialects as a Sileti, which, which are probably more distant from what we consider standard Bengali than standard Assamese in many ways. But they were all considered a part of this larger language group called Bengali, just as we have with Hindi today. Like, you have this entire... Uh, people tend to think that this entire territory from Bihar to Rajasthan speaks the same language, when in reality, these the dialects from Eastern Bihar to Rajasthan are in fact sometimes not even mutually intelligible. So essentially, that is what, uh, you know, it starts off with that, that colonial administration now has a need for an official language, and it uh, sort of settles on a dialect that is spoken mainly in what is southwestern Bengal today as the basis for the construction of this official language. Obviously, colonial authorities as well as uh, native native elites. Now, around the latter half of the 19th century, what we start seeing is uh, within what is today Assam, uh, and also in places like Orissa, uh, you know, an emphasis that their dialect was separate from this, uh, from a larger Bengali language. And as it so happened, this demand gained popularity. There was a lot of civil society mobilization based on this in Assam, in Orissa, etc., where they basically asserted their linguistic separateness from Bengal. And um, 
they started developing their own uh, literary traditions and another thing to recognize is the fact that you know it is not just the case that uh, you know this precedes or this uh, comes after you know what we consider bengali lingua uh, bengali literary traditions in southwestern bengal but what what is west bengal today but these happen concurrently in the ma matter of decades we were having different literary um, cultures developing based around a certain dialect what we consider bengali today is based on one particular dialect what we consider assamese today is based on another particular dialect what we consider odia is based on another particular dialect but obviously even within within these brackets there are a lot of similarities for instance if you look at the dialects of what people speak in north bengal we'll find that there is a greater similarity to what they speak just across the border in the western districts of assam than they have in com uh, than they have in common with what uh, for instance people speak in calcutta you know the linguistic politics of this is extremely complicated and ultimately all of this uh, boils down to how uh, you know certain uh, groups and certain civil societies start defining their own identities and not, and i'm not saying this is good or bad but this is just how it happens right so and you, you and it's not even unique to eastern india it is something that you see across south asia you will see this in other uh, parts of the world as well you will see this in europe for instance at that point when the uh, assamese identity or rather the ahomi identity starts to become a thing because of this linguistic movements there are yeah. also uh, sort of movements of people uh, my large scale migrations happening in in uh, colonial times could you tell us a bit about those as well right so again it's important to recognize that for colonial authorities or even you know people now tend to portray this as a you know massive movement of migrants from certain districts of eastern bengal into assam especially from moimunshing into the western districts of assam um again if you look at it uh, it's a bit more complicated than that isn't it so essentially the one thing that everyone really agrees upon is the fact that uh, the uh, colonial authorities as well as certain local elites did encourage uh, um cultivators from moimunshing and some other districts to come and uh, settle and cultivate the extremely fertile brahmaputra flood flood plain i think one of the major incidents that starts i mean one of the major reports that starts sparking this kind of tension and makes it far more mainstream than it used to be was this uh, was around the 1930s and the 1940s that that's a, that if you have to put a date on this when you know you started seeing xenophobic you know this kind of xenophobic display towards who are outsiders and who are like natives coming to full view it would probably be in the 1930s so after the 1931 census there is this british civil servant called cs mallan who authors a report and you know it's probably pertinent to quote the kind of language that he uses when he talks uh, when he actually authors that report the most important event in the province during the last 25 years likely to alter permanently the whole structure of assamese culture and civilization has been an invasion of vast hordes of land hungry bengali immigrants mostly muslims 
from the eastern uh, from districts of eastern bengal so within this statement you can see that uh, you know there is a playing to certain sent to you know this idea that the assamese identity is under threat from uh, waves of migration i am well, slightly curious why is a british bureaucrat so invested in the assamese identity okay so the, it turns out that uh, you know if you actually look at the history of uh, colonial uh, you know ethnography and creation of records etc you will see that in many cases they have always been interested in uh, a lot of ethnic issues They've always been interested in you know i mean you know some, some you know if you could cynically go and say that it's divide and rule but sometimes they were doing it just because they like, had their own biases yeah sometimes there was a genuine interest right sometimes there was a construct which was already present in the british bureaucracy's mind and they wanted reality to sort of adapt to that ideal yeah yeah, yeah. so a, a lot of this uh, sort of goes against like you know the very recent Uh, sort of discourse which is uh, which is often present in uh, like even in like left circles who should know much better is that you know there is this thing present that you know india is this one monolithic whole and assam is like this colony which was like the northeast was essentially colonized but what you are saying is something completely different that uh, a lot of this is essentially a product of colonial imaginations and it's not really yeah. even yeah, I mean, like even it's not even is, malicious it's just colonials being colonials colonial. and you know and the thing is i mean like it's a product of what we in the social and often called colonial governmentality uh, yeah but that, you know you see this phenomenon across south asia it's not just in uh, assam for instance uh, in british burma you would have that uh, distinction created between arakanese indians who would who later many would later identifies the rohingya and between the rakhines of of the region you would see ethnicization projects happening in uh, the northwestern frontiers as well you would see these ethnicization projects I mean, happening to, to sort of india. to sort of shorten it down one could say the british being extreme bureaucrats wanted to have very clear classifications often these were inaccurate yeah. as well And yeah, they, they, they often... wanted to clear classifications, but it's also important to recognize that there were, you know, it, you know, the neat, the neatest were also, you know, playing to these things sometimes to yes. secure their own local power because this does not happen with the British just saying that you know we're drawing up classifications and the neatest are saying okay we accept it. This happens because you know even within these sort of classifications etc. Neatest do see some sort of you know uh, reflection of their own. you know the kind of language that is being used and it's especially in 1930s again now 1930 something was happening across india right uh, across british india you had two major parties at that point of time there were other parties for sure the shidu caste federation the communist party was starting to form itself etc uh, but essentially a lot of the politics was essentially played between the congress and the muslim league right right and he uh, assam at that point of time had more muslims than it had hindus because you have to remember that silet etc were also part of assam uh and okay maybe i'm wrong about that having a muslim majority but it definitely had a extremely large population of muslims and in fact that would later play into partition negotiations as well jinnah actually wanted uh, assam to be a part of pakistan 
in the 1940s uh, the sadulla government was taken down by allegations that uh, uh, they were redistributing land to basically these landless uh, cultivators from eastern bengal and in fact there would be other leaders within the muslim league uh, some of whom would become leftists uh, prominently moulana bhashani who would later be known as the red moulana um, moulana bhashani what a lot of people might not know is that he actually started his political career in assam and over there he uh, essentially demanded land for the cultivators and you know as opposed to his popular perception in bangladesh where he is considered a national hero in assam remembers him a little differently especially the assamese speaking uh, population considers him to be this kind of uh, person who essentially wanted to you know take away land from the assamese and give it on the opposite side the ones who were playing to both this idea of hindus being marginalized and the assamese speakers being marginalized was the congress led by gopinath bordol and uh, yeah and essentially that is what resulted in the partition of assam itself which is also something that people don't really remember don't really talk about it was not just punjab and bengal which were the provinces that were partitioned assam also was partitioned in, in uh, uh, and the problem was essentially the uh, region which is select select had a um, muslim majority and it was a region that identified as bengali speaking again we can get into that debate regarding who is actually a bengali speaker and who is actually an assamese speaker and there is a lot of you know you can make an argument from linguistics that select deserves to be a language of its own but the fact is that uh, pe- the people of select were identified as bengali speakers and uh, the congress heavily campaigned for select to be separated from assam and at the end of the day you saw uh, this state being partitioned and select becoming a part of east pakistan and separated from the rest of assam so around that point i think before you finish this story do tell a bit about the sort of violence that erupts uh... right so one of the things that uh, people tend to ignore okay whenever we talk about bengalis and assamese and all of this is that this history of um, right after partition what happens is a lot of muslims are expelled from assam as being quote unquote not bangladeshi but pakistani infiltrators in fact uh, this happens uh, under the congress government led by gopinath bordol uh, there was another process that was happening across india which was the states reorganization committee now people assumed that uh, what is undivided what was undivided gopalpara back then uh, due to its history of being attached to bengal before being a part of assam and places like kachar which was which identified heavily as bengali speaking like that the what is today the borak valley had a history of identifying very strongly as a bengali speaking region uh, but gualpara there was always and gualpara shares a border with west bengal with kuch bihar so uh, the states reorganization committee essentially discussed whether to include gualpara into west bengal uh, and that led to a massive campaign on the ground to get these bengali muslims and bengali muslims here in courts uh, to identify as assamese speakers and as it would as it were this campaign was actually successful 
uh, in the census of the Malay, in the nineteen fifty one census, you suddenly had as the assembly speakers becoming a uh, if not a majority, a plurality of the state, with Bengalis being a clear in a clear minority. And Walpara, interestingly, uh, you know, a lot of respondents enough to basically prevent for the status quo regarding Walpara to be maintained had, you know, identified as Assamese speakers rather than Bengali speakers for that to, for that to be maintained, essentially. Uh, however, uh, anxiety still remained regarding whether, you know, you know, the state of Assam would be a monolingual state or whether it would be multilingual state. And obviously, the Assamese elite were very, very opposed to the idea of, uh, I, I wouldn't say all of all Assamese people were, but there was a significant uh, section, especially uh, sections which were associated with the Congress, who asserted that Assam, you know, Assamese would become the sole official language of Assam. This ultimately led to massive incidents of violence erupting across Assam, targeting those who identified as Bengali speakers, especially in 1960. So, you know, our listeners might have listened to a clip, uh, you know, at the start of this episode. And that clip, because to give you some context, that clip was essentially uh, the song, Haradon Rongmon, uh, which was composed around that time by, and it was a collaborative effect between Himango Vishash and uh, who's Beng who identified as Bengali and Bhupan Azarika, who identified as Assamese, you know, against this, uh, you know, this kind of race war that was happening, race riots that were happening in Assam at that point of time. And this was uh, a time when, Beng you know, a lot of Bengali speakers were actually expelled from Assam into West Bengal in an incident known as Bongal Khaga. But, for instance, in, uh, this was not just something that affected Bengalis. There were also uh, protests from Khasi uh, groups in what is today Meghalaya which would ultimately culminate in, uh, you know, the creation of Meghalaya as a state separate, distinct from Assam. Uh, there was, most notably, there was a protest in Borak Valley, where, uh, you know, people demonstrated for the right to, you know, speak, uh, to, you know, communicate and, you know, I mean, like, basically have Bengali maintained as an official language, at least in Borak Valley. And it led to a police firing in which some of them died. And the monument is, the mon you know, martyrs column is still there in, uh, Shilcho Station. Now, if we transition from this and we look at what happens in the 70s, now what happens in the 70s is the Bangladesh Liberation War happens. And then there's another accusation of refugees. Initially, it was that Pakistan, Muslim Pakistani infiltrators are coming into Assam. During the war, there was an allegation that they were like, Assam was again being flooded by another wave of immigrants from East Bengal. Yeah, so and certain Assamese nationalist groups, the most notable being the All Assam Students Union, ASU. They launched a movement in 1979 that was essentially about expelling illegal immigrants from Assam. This uh, ultimately ended with a lot of violence, including what is well known to be one of the most horrific single incidents of mass rioting uh, in post-1947 South Asia, which was the Nelly Massacre but which uh, has a death toll of around over 2,000, 2,000 mainly Bengali-speaking Muslims. And there was also another massacre, for instance, in Khairabad, where it was basically mostly Bengali-speaking Hindus were targeted, as well as the signing of the IMDT, 
passed by parliament that is the background uh, history for the episode which will begin now um, so now over to uh, comrade jasmine who will be your host hi everyone welcome to episode 10 of the material analysis podcast my name is jasmine today we have with us uh, comrade pramod comrade chandu and a guest panelist gautam bhatia this episode is called nrc and we'll be talking about the national registry of citizens um gautam bhatia is uh, he wears many hats but he's primarily a lawyer gautam do you want to introduce yourself quickly yeah i'm i'm a, I'm a lawyer i i focus on constitutional law uh, reading about it writing about it sometimes teaching it uh, and i've been following the uh, the nrc um, issue well in in two ways uh, two or three years ago when i was working at the supreme court uh, my boss uh, senior counsel at the court was representing one of the parties in the constitutional challenge to um, uh, section 6a of the citizenship act which is part of the you know the, the compromise between the movement in assam and the central government uh, so i at that point i i had a chance to read about some of the um, the the issues and actually um the 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 case that that was supposed to come up but didn't come up uh, was actually um it was a reference from a two judge bench that basically was the judgment that began uh, all of this the, the present mess so i did read that judgment as well uh, and so that Kunoval was versus, sorry right unoval versus union of india right uh, this was the 2014 judgment of nareman and gogoi i i have forgotten the name uh, the, the name of the parties I, i can get back to you on that uh but we knew it as a, as the section 6a judgment so so we didn't know it but the and we, we didn't think of it as uh, in terms of the party names uh you know some cases kind of become known about the by the issues uh so that was that was the um, uh one way in which i got to know about the issues and the second was that uh, when uh, uh when gogoi became chief justice um, last year uh, so october 2nd i think or october 3rd was his first day uh, around that time a uh, couple of weeks before that i began following this very closely because uh, uh, because i knew that as chief justice he would have a lot of power to to um, to you know accelerate this even further which is actually what we have seen so i began reading about this more at the time and so in these two ways i've, I've come to the issue um you know as as a mainlander as an outsider but uh, you know as someone who's who's concerned and and worked on it in a certain in a professional capacity as well great and uh, thanks so much for joining us today gautam i would like to ask you a few questions yeah uh, first of all could you uh, give us a short legal timeline of the developments since the assam accord and especially the point that uh, when the assam accord was signed it yeah. was an extremely political thing there, yeah. there was not really any ethnic minority representation yeah when it was being hashed out so yeah yeah um yeah okay i mean i so i think um i'll actually i think you need to start before that to make sense of the assam accord you have to you know um, understand what came before that so uh, the issue is that 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 uh, issue of migration into assam and and the fears of the the um uh, identity of the of the ethnic groups in assam being submerged by by migration has been something that's that's uh, been an issue for a very long time more than 100 years 
you find references to it uh, in documents that the British, uh, you know, uh, left behind, and uh, those documents now then were used in a Supreme Court judgment. I'll come to T.S. Malik report, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, among others, and in the Constituent Assembly, uh, you find a lot of time being spent on this debate, uh, and in fact, the uh, the provisions of the Citizenship Act were hammered out. Uh, sorry, of the of the Constitution dealing with citizenship were hammered out in the background of these kinds of concerns. Uh, so this has been an issue that's been a sore point uh, for, for a long time. Um, and, uh, and the Assam Accord was the culmination of uh, you know, a, a very powerful political movement in Assam, a movement which is often violent, as the Nelly massacre and others showed. And then you, you had you know, uh, the accord which was signed by the central government and and the leaders of the movements like the All Assam Students Union, ASU, and and, and you know the Assam Gana Parishad and those kinds of groups, uh, and so so the Assam Accord basically then what it did was uh, it set a number of cutoff dates uh, which would then be used to determine uh, who would qualify as a citizen you know of India if they came into Assam from outside. Uh, and who wouldn't? So one date was 1967, 1971, and so on. Uh, now, after the Assam occurred, that was supposed to be be you know the, the resolution of of the of the conflict. Um, after that, the, the the central government passed a couple of laws to to implement that um, and uh, setting up tribunals and and you know to 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 ensure that that was carried out. Uh, and there were a couple of key changes that were made in those laws. Uh, a, a crucial change, and, and that is at the root of a lot of the issues today, was that in Indian citizenship law, always uh, the burden of, of proving citizenship has been placed on the person who is accused of not being a citizen. Right. So what I, what I mean by this is that, that if tomorrow you, know, you are taken to a tribunal and you are told that there is an accusation against you that you are a, an illegal migrant, uh, then you have to show that you are not. And in the absence of any evidence from either side, right, you are presumed not to be uh, a citizen. And this uh, basically reverses some of the most basic presumptions that we come with. So, you know, sexual proven guilty, which is a criminal law principle. Just the idea that if somebody is accusing you, right, they have to prove that you are guilty of what they yeah. are claiming you are guilty of. Right. It's been reversed in Indian citizenship law. Right. Now, uh, now, when, now when, when the central government and the parliament... Uh, passed laws to imp- to implement the Assam Accord. They actually, very interestingly, and and this is a rare instance of the of the of the of the Indian state being very humanitarian, and you can <laughs> what the motivations were. But they actually, IMDT. so yeah, exactly, the IMDT, the Act. They put the burden back on the state. So so now, I mean, the, if if you were accused of of being an illegal migrant, then the state would have to prove that you were illegal. And if the state can't prove it, then you're Presume that you are a citizen. Right? So, so that was that's what the act said, and it also made it much harder for the tribunals that were operating under the Foreigners Act and 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 you know, that legal regime um, to uh, uh, you know uh, proceed. So, for example, there was a requirement that there must exist a prima facie case before you can send a notice to you know the accused person and 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 bring them before you and things like that. So, they basically did things that you would imagine are very basic human rights, common sense. Uh, procedural safeguards, uh, but that obviously people had a problem with. Uh, and then Sarbananda Sonowal, you know, uh, famously chief minister of of uh, Assam later, uh, filed a PIL in the Supreme Court 
to challenge these 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 laws um and in two judgments that are even by the standards of the indian supreme court extraordinary and by extraordinary i mean extraordinarily ghastly uh, yeah. supreme court basically says that migration is a threat to you know it's an external threat to indian security um and and it and it uses that to say that so article 355 of the indian you know constitution says that it shall be the duty of the central government to protect india from you know external threats something of that kind i forgot the exact wording um and and the reason why the court says that is because it's the only way it has to somehow find a way to strike down these laws because nobody's fundamental right was being violated by these laws right so these these laws were about um, who has the burden of proving you know legal migration who you know what the procedures are and so on so there was no fundamental right of sarbananda sonowal that was being violated here and so the court basically invents this new thing it says that um, if if it is a parliamentary law that uh, that actually threatens the stability of the country then the court can can step in and illegal migration is is a threat to the country's stability um, this law actually fails to adequately deal with that threat and so we strike it down and now, and and this actually if you if you tell any constitutional lawyer any lawyer anywhere in the world they will just uh, uh, gawp at you because because one of the cardinal principles of of courts all over the world is that on issues of national security and on issues of of national stability right uh, mm-hmm. the courts will defer to parliamentary wisdom and that's the justification courts always use everywhere to uphold terror laws right and they say we can't strike down these terror laws that basically completely strip away protections from the accused because national security and the parliament decides but here you have the court saying actually no we the court will decide what national security requires and this law is inadequately curbing migration so we strike it down and bring you back to the old position uh, you know uh, of of the burden being on on the accused and so on now this is important because what the court did in this case this was in 5 and and thereabouts it basically said that 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 basically that the constitution of india requires that you take a presumption against a person who is accused of of not being a citizen right so and and parliament can't change that uh, so basically it's a constitutional precept that uh, is a presumption of non citizenship and so in that basically means that any of us tomorrow right if if there is an accusation that we are not citizens the presumption is that yes we are not and and then we have to go around proving that we are which is why you know this whole thing about extending the nrc to all of india and so on uh, so that was a very significant judgment because it just um, um i think she, it it just shaped a certain kind of of my of disc, discourse about like migration yes. in india which has which has now just become established and entrenched uh, in the judiciary and in law uh, and i mean you can read the judgment it 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 it, it actually reads like you know uh, right wing sorry it it i've read the judgment like it's borderline hate speech and it reads like a like a like a matteo salvini or or you know uh, <laughs> like donald trump or or a, or a nigel farage you know basically talking about immigration being this this real uh, you know uh, threat to the country and they cite the governor of assam from 1997 a report he wrote and this governor is himself was an extreme right wing figure the report had no sanctity at all as evidence so basically it was a classic supreme court pil job where you have your ideological conclusion as a judge 
and you reverse engineer an extremely shoddy judgment to justify it and because you know the public culture is such in india that we don't criticize the court that just <laughs> was you know un unchecked for years and years and now it's too late because that is now settled right uh, so that happens um in 2005 right and got then a, got a- Yeah. Can I ask you a question because you have already reached the 2005, but there yeah. is another thing which happens in the act of 2004, which yeah. I think is also significant. Uh, yeah. Aside from the court assuming that people are not essentially citizens yeah. and they have yeah. to prove it, and that immigrants are essentially dangerous. The yeah. third thing which I think also is significant is that the basis of citizenship around that time. Yeah, sort of randomly changes from Jus Solai to Jus Sanguinis, wherein uh, you it's no longer okay that if your uh, ancestry has lived a certain time in India and yeah. you have to essentially yeah. can you please that? If you want to, but the, the thing it basically changes and it also cre- creates a lot of confusion right now across for especially for refugees and especially yeah. for migrants who came in after seventy one. is yeah. that previously if you were born in india you would become an indian citizen automatically yeah. but now it's citizenship by blood so unless yeah. you can prove that some of your parents or your grandparents yeah. etc were already in india you can you are not eligible for citizenship anymore so so, so Gautam, can you please uh, talk a bit about this yeah i mean so the thing is that uh, again this this takes you back to the constituent assembly where there was this big debate about you know whether india should go down the the use solely uh, route which is you know um uh citizenship by virtue of being you know physically born in that country uh, or you sanguinis which is you know citizenship by blood so you know parents and parentage and so on. and and the thing was that that india actually i mean so because by and large the constituent assembly was driven by you know broadly what you can call a secular like intellectual framework uh, it was it was um the constitutional provisions are biased towards you solely uh but never com- but it never completely repudiated you sanguinis and and that was always like a kind of a, a you know uh it was always there and yeah, as an undercurrent and and it keep kept erupting from time to time and and yeah and over time the law has gradually been uh you know uh inching away from from you solely and towards you sanguinis so that's actually why in this whole assam issue uh it it's it, it even more uh bias towards towards you sanguinis because now you have to show that that um uh basically the bloodline at at some point right uh, can validly um claim to to have been indian citizens under the provisions of of the of the of the statute as as they pertain to uh to assam so so it's no longer enough to actually um uh prove that you were born uh, in the country and uh, it, that actually also and 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 you can see that that creeping change in recent attempted amendments to the citizenship act where it's now actually going beyond just blood it's actually now even religion is 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 now um uh being used to sort out those who can and cannot claim uh, citizenship so that's that's yeah that's that's additional uh, issue that that is responsible so when you for example see uh, in the news that um uh that that uh people have had to show their family tree uh you know uh, to prove their inclusion in the nrc and all of that flows from this gradual shift uh towards uh citizenship by blood right okay so there is another issue that uh, i think you know we are missing out and that was the issue of the yeah. super d vote right? yeah 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 
and essentially what has been happening in assam over the past few decades and especially with the nrc is now yeah. that there are certain government uh, the, the, the government suddenly doesn't trust its own yeah. documents right yeah yeah so essentially yeah. what happens with the devoter thing is that uh, people with valid voter id cards are suddenly taken off the list of registered voters in assam yeah. on the yeah. suspicion that they are foreigners yeah. so how uh, what sort of precedent does it raise when the government does not trust its own documents where it actually does not take it because considering you know when we actually when we are asked for citizenship proof some of the basic documents that we show are are our uh, voter ids or driving licenses etc right yeah and yeah. suddenly you have this one in one state where you stopped recognizing the voter id as a proof of citizenship i think that's yeah. what it amounts to right um no so see i mean so yeah, first of all on on d voters yeah so i mean the idea there is that if you haven't voted in a certain number of elections then you are deemed to be a doubtful voter and and then they kind of strike off your id card and yeah so it's it, it's completely logical because there could be a number of reasons why you know uh, uh you may not have voted in, in elections in the past right. um it's just to check is it uh, transparent do they make it clear that do they make those documents clear saying uh i don't know I, i'm not sure about that that would be something that lawyers who actually work with these cases would know sure. better Yeah, so I, I mean, like I haven't mentioned nothing. I'm aware that the the ECI basically in 1997 they basically took a survey yeah. of Assam. They actually uh, went from door to door asking people to prove their Indian citizenship, and yeah. when they could not for a bunch of reasons. For instance, Assam is uh, hit by floods almost every year. Yeah, right. And people lose their documents all the time. Yeah. So if they could not prove that they were citizens in that particular round. Yeah, they were uh, declared D voters along with the absentee voters that you spoke of. Yeah, around like three hundred and seventy thousand of these people, around one hundred and I'm almost two hundred thousand people were sent to uh, a foreigners tribunal. Yeah, and out of that, I think only three thousand to four thousand people were declared foreigners by. I and I think that was one of the grounds in which the Sonowal versus Union of India case happened. That you yeah. know. so many people were being brought in front of tribunals but they were not being declared illegal right yeah but yeah. The, have yeah. there not been challenges to this because you know it would be very concerning but i think it would be very concerning if someone comes in any state and starts saying that you know suddenly <laughs> you're not eligible to vote because you know, yeah. we don't think you're an indian citizen yeah so see this is actually like this is the problem so so in a uh, uh, in a normal supreme court in a normal you know um uh normal country you they would have you would have these laws being passed and then you could uh, challenge them in the court saying that they violate established constitutional principles um right right that would be a normal way to go so you say okay this 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 devoter business is against the rule of law it's arbitrary you know you can make any kind any number of grounds right. uh, in, in india now because of public interest litigation right uh things have become very murky so so in 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 uh, what you actually seen is in the in the whole assam situation the people filing the cases have actually been the ones who want uh, um, even uh, an even harsher and even uh, more uh, draconian you know immigration um, uh, kind of policy from the government and their objection mm-hmm. is the government is not being harsh enough and so they are the ones who move the court to try and force the government to be even harsher than it is and so actually the constitutional cases have come from the other side they've not come from people yes, who yes, yes. Uh, you know and 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 there's no 
and the way the Supreme Court has responded uh, actually shows you that a constitutional challenge coming from a person who wants, you know, um, the the regime to be in a certain sense, you know, uh, made uh, more humane or more constitutional is doomed to fail because the court has has taken these these petitions by these people and has gone even further than they wanted. So, uh, right. in fact, and that actually brings us to uh, the the present uh, scenario, uh, which is that actually this entire NRC exercise right now uh, stems from. Uh, petitions filed by asu and you know agp and mm-hmm. those those bodies uh, basically mm-hmm. saying that that uh, after sonowal uh, mm-hmm. the state is basically dragging its feet uh, on yes. uh, on on implementing uh, yeah. uh, the assam accord and then uh, the court starting in 2013 uh, says yes 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 this is terrible this is very bad uh, the state clearly is not serious about this so we will take over uh and that bench has consistently been justice gogoi now to just gogoi his bench uh, right. last six years uh, and right. so harshmander yeah. harshmander basically did file i mean like did ask gogoi to recuse himself finally but yeah he so was harshmander uh, for some reason i think known uh, best to himself filed a pil uh, about uh, about the inhumane conditions in the uh, in the uh, uh, detention camp for uh, there Uh, and which was immediately hijacked uh, by uh, the chief justice and turned into a pil about why haven't enough people been deported so i think that yes. uh, uh, which again shows you that that if if you actually file a case challenging what's happening you know uh, on on the on the basis that it's a constitutional violation what you're inviting is the court to hijack it and and turn it into an the opposite of what you want uh, which is you know something you you've seen throughout right so another thing is that you know once concerning de voters again yeah. once it, it has also emerged that people who have been cleared by the foreigners tribunal or rather yeah. have not been deported by the foreigners tribunal yeah. yeah many of them could not vote their their status was not restored after being cleared by the fts yeah so yeah. you are seeing that i mean like what we are seeing is that there is an eci which is hell bent on disenfranchising people as far as yeah. we can tell we are yeah. seeing that there is a supreme court and the legal system which is not offering any help or any assistance to these people who are being disenfranchised yeah. so the issue is uh, you know like again regarding these things there there don't seem to have been apart from the assamese nationalist groups who have been consistently ethno nationalist groups who have been consistently pressuring the supreme court to act upon this and the supreme court you know through ronjan gogoi himself yeah. taking this kind of stance we have seen very little come out of the other side i mean like there was one uh, i mean like comrade chondu uh, knows the, the exact name of the case there was one case which actually did try and uh, challenge the definition of what is who is indigenous and who is not in assam right but i think that case was tossed okay like, i, I, I didn't know of this i didn't know of this yeah okay the kamalakha purukas versus union right i i don't know about this case Yeah, so the thing is that when you have this kind of inst- I mean like and it's going beyond the democratic uh, framework yeah. right I mean like I mean like it's beyond what you can challenge democratically it's coming through to institutions like the supreme court and the um, election commission of india how does someone plan on challenging this how do you fight against this i mean like that is yeah. the next question no i mean see i i i i, I so I, i what i can say as a lawyer is that the the legal institutions have completely failed um yeah. and and you will not uh, find the remedy there 
uh, once uh, the present chief justice retires it might slow down a little bit uh, but it's gone too far i think to be contained and so so what i can say is that that don't file pils like you know i mean with all due respect to you know harsh mandal and i have great admiration for him and great respect for him but uh, but don't like go to court with this first of all i mean that's the most important thing because i think the court has shown over the last five or six years that its priorities are are somewhat different to what you might think um a a a constitutional court's priorities would be uh, and right. from all i've heard the guwahati high court is even worse uh, is 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 even um uh more uh, is even less sympathetic so we just say to you know uh, yes. to claims so i think that that institutionally you can't uh, there's no scope to do anything institutionally uh, which i think which which leaves the only alternative as a form of mass politics um, which i think you people are better placed to you know know how to do that and then yeah. how to you know, accomplish that um, yeah what i can say is that that the court is not the forum to um, to uh to, to do this and 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 uh, and any attempt to do so would be dangerous uh, because it would it would uh, invite a worse outcome right and in terms of the future there seems to be political will now to expand the nrc uh, in the sense to do it outside of assam as well yeah. uh how likely do you think that is and do you think there are going to be serious legal challenges to that speaking only as a lawyer say yeah so i think i think it's i think the likelihood is is definitely substantial because it seems that that um it is something that uh the present government sees as as beneficial to its political prospects so it seems that that um it, it they will try to bring it about now um, i have no doubt it will be challenged because you have no choice you have to challenge it uh, as that as i say to some of my colleagues uh, you know you we wish that this wasn't the court we were before but we don't have a choice uh, and we can't avoid the court it is a major player in the game so it will be challenged uh, but unfortunately I, the prospects of of uh, any successful challenge are bleak because again as i said a little earlier once you had sarbananda sonowal that case once you had this uh, constitutionalization of the anti migrant rhetoric as as being raised to a constitutional principle uh what grounds do you have left now challenge it because the supreme court has said that that um that there is always a presumption against your citizenship and and you must prove it mm-hmm. uh, and and so the, the the government can simply say we are we are we are only implementing the supreme court's own reading of the constitution so then then what do you have left to say right so i mean i'm sure i'm sure challenge will be there and and we will find creative arguments and we will try but uh, but again i i on this issue i i think it would be extremely naive uh, and dangerous to 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 hope that legal institutions will in any way halt slow down or otherwise stop this from going all over the country especially in west bengal they're also pro- promising a cab the citizenship amendment bill of 2016 yeah. they're planning on yeah. implementing that yeah. right and uh, basically because two of the constituencies that they won bongao and ranaghat in from west yeah. bengal are refugee dominated constituencies yeah and uh, they have been campaigning on the basis of awarding an cab and they have promised voters over there that the cab will precede the nrc i mean like they're not going to have an nrc without a cab or vice yeah. versa yeah now the, because that's also been a long standing demand from the refugee uh, regions of west bengal to get for them to get citizenship yeah now the question is that the cab the way it is uh, 
form uh, formulated it clearly makes distinction religious distinctions right yeah so is there a chance that the supreme court will strike that down on the basis of you know parmane essentially saying that you know you're including all these religions except for you know you're saying that you know we're going to leave out muslim i mean to answer the question does it violate constitutional principles the answer is obviously yes uh, it discriminates on the grounds of religion uh, it is also arbitrary because the justification that the government provides which is that india is surrounded by muslim majority countries and therefore by definition uh, minorities can only be non muslims obviously falls flat because you have the ahmadiyas and so everyone knows those arguments right so so yeah, even yeah. the government's own terms uh, it's arbitrary and 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 fails article 14 now the problem arises because and this is something that that's you know part of constitutional uh, jurisprudence all over the world uh, is that when it comes to a criteria for citizenship uh, then right. the the government is is given a, a very very wide Uh, area of deference and constitutional principles either don't apply or are applied with with a lot of leeway, uh, and so so that is the big problem. I, again, uh, talking doctrinally and and not talking politically of of what the court might do or might not do. Uh, doctrinally, you come up against this this problem. Now, I would think that you can still make a strong case uh, against the constitutionality of of the CAB the bill because. the discrimination is so blatant and and so on its face that even un, even going by the by the by the greater deference that you um, uh, you know uh, accord to uh, to parliament as a court you can still strike it down under that expanded deferential scope and i've, I've argued for that in a couple of columns so i think you can you still can and, and i think it will be it'll be a, there'll be a challenge it'll be a strong challenge uh, and i think it definitely mm-hmm. has more chance of success Than than an NRC challenge, uh, but again, right. yeah, I, I would put it at a fifty percent chance of success. Okay, and uh, regarding the NRC, how does the how would a government go about implementing it? Well, I, as far as far as I um, understand, for the for the NRC, so I think they recently amended uh, one of the uh, rules under the Foreigners Act to expand mm-hmm. foreigners' tribunals to the rest of the country as well. um right. which was which was seen by many as a starting step uh, uh to um, to 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 do this now as far as i understand and this is a little complex so i, I could be wrong here so and i but as far as i understand to establish the nrc itself uh you don't need a law you can establish it through to rules or notifications like uh, from the ministry so yeah 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 exactly uh, the authority for which flows from laws like the foreigners act and so on uh and so you basically establish the the uh the nrc through through uh through ministry uh, rules and then the, the the and then you you start it and then what happens is that the the people who uh fall out of the nrc then they get dragged to foreigners tribunals uh which are established under the foreigners act where this whole idea of of the presumption against citizenship and all applies so that that's right. broadly how it uh, how it works you have uh, by some estimates there will be million i mean like the final draft has millions of people excluded from it yeah and uh, uh, the final list when it comes out people also suspect there will be millions of people who yeah. are not on the list yeah yeah what happens to 
all these millions of people and clearly bangladesh has said that it's not taking these people yeah. anywhere yeah. so it has nothing to do with these people yeah uh, you cannot literally construct detention camps to house millions of people well they are trying they are trying the supreme court and the, and the gogoi has is telling them to speed up the construction of the, all these camps so i i wouldn't underestimate uh, that eventuality because the supreme court is really like uh, coming on hard on the government and asking them why haven't you constructed camps and all of that so so yeah but sorry go on yeah so but even if they can't what happens to people i mean like you know there has been certain uh articles there have been certain leaders like okil gogoi and there have been certain people who in the assamese media who i've been reading and who i've been following for a while who've been yeah. writing things like you know basically these will be half citizens will be happy to have these half citizens but they will not be entitled to any rights essentially yeah. no constitutional protections and rights yeah uh how does you know how does that uh, fall under any scheme of law that you have this new, around the 10% of your Uh, the 10% of a population of an entire state that is essentially stateless living yeah. in india well that's the thing right you, you you can't say because this has not happened before so 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 gotham gotham uh, can i ask this in a very pointed manner yeah is is it historically and legally appropriate if this happens to call these concentration camps and essentially say that the the union of india is making concentration camps I mean, the, all all the evidence of the conditions in these camps shows that they are. I mean, so uh, it's not even a question of when it happens. Uh, they already seem to. Uh, uh, they already have concentration camps. You, you have reports of, of the amount of space that people have. You know, uh, in in these camps and and the kinds of uh, conditions that they are subjected to. So I think that that it's accurate uh, as of now, as of present day. It's not something that's in the future. thank you yeah. like we needed somebody to say that out aloud and uh, yeah. it yeah, it means a lot that there are still people in indian public life who are willing to um sort of push back against this because a lot of uh, quote unquote intellectuals are busy writing poetic defenses of this whole thing and calling it uh, some kind of mainland conspiracy to yeah <laughs> colonize the assamese and not just yeah. that i mean like there are mainland kotan kot mainland uh, public figures like yogendra yadav who actively quote people like okhil gogoi who are basically saying that there should be people reduced to the status of uh, half citizens and just be worked on camps and what not and not yeah, be no, allowed so to buy i think uh, like i think it's like a, so i think it's like it's a very it's a very cynical kind of a thing because what you're effectively doing is you are taking what is a very legitimate and a correct grievance which is that i mean the mainlanders have always ignored you know uh, this part of the country and they have no idea and so on which is all true like it's all it's all and we are all complicit in that and then you are spinning that to justify uh, the kinds of human rights violations that normally go with the nazi regime so and and you know to trying to use that to to uh, justify that which is i think uh, deeply cynical and i, I also come across uh, you know uh, people who i think identify as radical leftists who you know Uh, use this discourse, and to me, it's very surprising that that this is actually uh, this is not. Um, it can't be seen clearly that that whatever grievances are there against mainlanders, nothing justifies you know herding people into these camps and making them stateless, uh, and that these two issues are disjunct. Uh, that's to me very surprising. That, yeah. that uh, I that, mean, that, like, it, and when the courts basically say that you know uh, this is not even up for debate, that yeah. you know we are accepting categories of. Uh, indigeneity yeah. and foreignness 
and this uh, concept of indigeneity and foreignness comes from uh, purely from the notion that the Assamese ethno-nationalists themselves have presented. Yeah. It becomes an extremely big problem, and especially when you have a chief justice who is sympathetic to uh, you know these ethno-nationalist uh, beliefs. Yeah. Who's, so, uh, who's, like who comes from a political tradition which was involved with Assu and yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, sure, it might not legally be a conflict of interest, but it's pretty damn ethically a conflict of interest. So. I think it's very clear it's a conflict of interest, and again, I think that it it to me is. Uh, I think a very sad reflection on our uh, public uh, conversation and culture uh, uh, talking about the court that, um, that this is not something that has uh, become an outrage um, so far. I mean, like you're part of the program, you know, you're generally seen as a progressive lawyer in uh, Delhi, etc. So yeah. what is the mood of the, you know, you know, progressive lawyers in Delhi? Will they be challenging this further? Will they be trying and fighting these cases? I think Indian lawyers of late have fallen into uh, the trap of what we call liberal legalism, which is that um, that you have become happy with your uh, 377 and your adultery and your sabri mala kind of cases, uh, yeah. and and uh, you and you have become invested uh, in the court uh, as a protector of of fundamental rights uh, to the extent that you now are unable or unwilling. To mount a root and branch critique of of the court, um, and I think that that's one reason why, among the progressive lawyers, you've you've had so little, um, you know, uh, so little speaking up about this. Um, yeah, and and I think second thing is that Nitin Sethi, I think on my on my Facebook wall actually, uh, he said it's through also the, ge- the geography of our minds, which is that again Assam is far away from Delhi. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't have the immediacy. It doesn't have the the kind of glamour that you know uh, three seventy seven case or an Aadhaar for that matter has you know for that matter just mm. to like be self critical here. So I think that that these are the reasons why you haven't seen uh, something similar. It's in, in, inexcusable, but but that's what it is. Um, and I think what you can do in the Supreme Court again, the problem is you can't do anything in the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court is the one that's driving this. Uh, right. And and um, and so uh, is this again this bizarre. Where PILs have taken us, right? Is that in a functioning democracy, the 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 government would do something, and you then would go to court and say, "Look, this is violating norms." Here, you actually have this bizarre situation where the government is telling the court, "Look, go slow, like take it easy, like don't you know, like set deadlines of this kind, nahi ho paega. and the court is saying that, "Nahi nahi, hum to karenge, right? We will do it." Uh, so in that case, you can't go to the court because the court the court is the rights violator here, right? Like to put it very bluntly. Right. Uh, and so, where do you go when when the guard when the guardian becomes like the the the, the, the you know the, the invader? Then where do you go? You can't go anywhere. Uh, so, the, as I said, the court is not going to help us here. It has to be some kind of a, a political like movement that fundamentally begins to question, uh, you know, the tropes and the and the rhetoric that has become settled. Um, and as far as the court goes, I think you have to wait for a few years and and try and gradually maybe try and shift. Uh, jurisprudence towards something more humane, but it'll take time. Uh, but no, I mean, you do have your Aman Vadu, you have your Anas Siddiqui, uh, you have all these amazing lawyers uh, who are actually doing the grunt work of fighting these cases day to day in the foreigners' tribunals. Uh, Sanjay Hegde has been like the senior counsel who's been like, you know, helping them. So I think you do have these people who are really um, uh, very closely involved, except that they're not the ones who will feature on your, on your like, you know, 
uh, newspaper like headlines and so on because because this is not the glamorous case uh, but they are the ones who are doing all the work so uh, gautam uh, i think uh, we have pretty much reached the consensus here and we try to articulate that before we do that um, yeah. a, a sort of internationalist look at how this yes. whole thing is so india is not even a signatory of principle of non refoulement but uh, uh, no but but non refoulement is a part of customary international law so we are effectively yes. uh, bound yes, by that's but what we, i was that was, I was we, getting we at recently, that we yes but we recently did violate that right because uh, yes. with the case of those uh, we think for seven more yeah 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 we send them yeah. back and again so, once again it so was what go is away. like go the go international go legal go opinion on what india is doing because somebody must be observing all of this right like you had a un a un statement uh, last week that that warned against against um, against what is happening that's been the only comment so far from the international organizations i think it's also because of the fact that um that the, uh so, the, the so far it's it's being perceived as an internal indian matter uh, i think at the point at which you begin to actively declare people stateless or try and deport them is when when it it breaches an international norm in the way that will attract the attention or the intervention of the un organizations got uh, a one question yeah. also are concentration camps a breach of international norms i no, mean uh, I, 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 i mean yeah, they 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 violate like principles of of use cogens which are like you know fundamental uh, uh, international legal norms so so definitely i mean they uh, uh, they are but again you will have to get into america's doing it as well sorry i mean america's doing it as well right yeah i mean also to get into all kinds of terminological like arguments about proving that there are concentration camps or not if you actually want to take that argument further uh, which is what makes it always difficult yeah yeah but th- th- that's the thing so you mentioned that you know the principle of non refoulement you know once india starts violating that but it, it recently did violate that with regards to rohingyas right yes yes so yes how so how come that did not get uh, the kind of international yeah i don't i don't know actually like i don't know why it, i was surprised to see that 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 it didn't attract uh, international i mean uh, i i did see some lawyers post on twitter that you know this is the first time india has ever done this that you know yeah. india has actually gone and deported refugee seek- asylum seekers into uh, the country where they actually are fleeing from but yeah. this beyond that i did not see much outrage and in fact the public opinion against the rohingyas has also been like well it's I mean, been manufactured yeah. it's been, it been manufactured very systematically by the by the uh, you know uh, by people who have taken it to turn them into criminals and then i mean i, I even yeah. remember just like uh, two or three months ago i think something happened in in bihar like there was somebody was raped or gang raped and in in literally like in 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 48 hours there were whatsapp forwards viral whatsapp forwards that the rohingyas had done it and yeah i mean i think it is a very systematic way of demonizing them and making sure the public opinion turns against them so uh, thank you gautam for answering all our questions uh, yeah. let's try to summarize the points which have yeah. been made today because i think they are pretty important and we should mention them again succinctly yes, so yes. that the audience yes, has a yes. solid yes. takeaway yeah, uh, yeah so one point which has been made quite clearly uh, by all of us uh, here is that the the supreme court has overstepped its uh, mandate to a point that in this case it is the aggressor and yeah, yeah. You, we really don't know how to like who do you go to then if yeah. if, if the supreme court is 
the one uh, yeah. doing this. Yeah. And another point which has been made is that it has been now, in a way, since Sarabhananda, it has been embedded now that the citizen has to prove their citizenship. I think that is the scary thing for all our audience. doesn't matter where you live, which state yeah. you are in. If tomorrow they come after you, yeah. then you will have to sort of defend against the whole apparatus of Indian state. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And another point which has been made is that the uh, arbitrariness and the ambiguity of everything from foreigners' tribunals to de-voter lists to everything yeah. wherein you can even get exonerated and still not be allowed to vote. You yeah. are placed on de-voters' list for random reasons. Uh, and, and this sort of... Uh, uh, sort of sanctioned randomness or this sanctioned arbitrariness yeah. is yeah. what can be weaponized against any citizen in any state. The, yeah, I think also add to that the fact that um, asking for documentation, right, ultimately uh, has an uh, disproportionately adverse impact on the most marginalized or the most unlikely to have yes. documentation. Yes, so it's and not it, like it, it hits the it hits the vulnerable the hardest. And historically, it is a tool of fascist states. It's it's something uh, yeah. like papers please is literally a fascist meme. Yes. So, yeah. the next point is that uh, uh, about it being challenged. Well, it has been the PILs which have created this situation in the first place, wherein yeah. the courts have taken these PILs and have gone further than the state, yeah. further than the government. Sorry, the courts are yeah. part of the state, but further than the elected government. Yeah. Further than even the PILs wanted, yeah. and then yeah. have sort of pushed for these. Yeah. And as for what the courts have pushed for, they have pushed for these extremely inhuman detention camps. Yeah. And yeah. now there are conversations about keeping people in, but with half rights or no yeah. rights, and yeah. essentially yeah. creating a sanctioned system of statelessness, which goes against every single constitutional as well as international norms on what the duties of a sovereign state is supposed to be. Yeah. yeah. And uh, finally, all of this, including the so-called constitutional amendment bill, yeah. they have an extreme political angle to them. The the establishment is going to be using them to do demographic changes for electoral uh, outcomes, and uh, and they are arbitrary in the sense the CAB, for example, for some reason uses this whole religious divide thing and then gives the most uh, uh, vapid of reasons for them. And yet they would be passed. And if passed, they would be challenged. I think what Gotham has consistently said throughout this episode that a, a lot of what is happening is extremely brutal. And like he agreed with me on the phrase, uh, frankly, I was surprised that Gotham, you agreed when I said, are these concentration camps? Because... Uh, I mean, you are a public figure, and we are nobody. I mean, I think it's obvious that they are. So I mean, like, <laughs> you have to you, you be dishonest to like uh, to not not say that. Right. So, uh, but I think the point which you have made throughout, which which is the key takeaway for our audience, is that the way to resist this is not through the courts. Of course, lawyers would be. Uh, fighting this and they some have been doing brave work and as you have said liberal yeah. lawfare is something that is occupying space in the newspapers whereas this is the thing which newspapers yeah. and political parties in the opposition should be concentrating at but yes the way to resist this is not through just not through lawfare lawfare will happen 
but yeah. the way to resist this is to build mass movements against it there is really nothing we can do till politically we are in this situation because the constitution yeah. will keep getting violated and yeah. it will be violated by everybody in part till there is an actual popular upsurge to preserve rights and liberties of all sorts of people people who may not look like you or may not have the class caste background as you or may live yeah. somewhere far away from where you live and yeah. far away from your imagination as well so yeah. have i missed out anything uh, comrade pramod uh, comrade jasmine do you, no no uh, i think you've covered all of it so uh, uh so before we put in last question uh, gautam i hope that you do not get arrested for this episode <laughs> uh, eventually we are poor leftist analysts so we will not be able to save you we are hoping that if we get arrested <laughs> you come and save us i mean, uh, nothing i have said here is something i haven't already said uh, or written like in columns so i, I think i'm fine yeah <laughs> okay so does anybody have any final points to make no, that, that that thank you i mean like i don't have much to say after this so I so, uh, so dear audience uh, this was a important episode please spread it to as many people as you can as gautam bhatia has said that this is an issue which needs to be uh, circulated it's an important issue and it's not getting the coverage it needs so please read on it please read on the various judgments which have led to this situation please understand that millions of people can be put into concentration camps essentially and it's not just the establishment it's not just the government is the very supreme court which is complicit and hence uh, it it is up to us the people of this country to defend democracy um thank you uh, by the way uh, if you like our work do share it do follow us on uh, twitter at analysis pod do follow us on soundcloud we have recently made a patreon do consider donating to us we do not take any corporate money so Uh, anything you give us would be used to sustain this podcast um, thank you everybody on the panel uh, comrade jasmine comrade pramod and thank you so much gautam bhatia thank, for thank being you. here and educating us thank, thank you thank you